Welcome to NetSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. China and the United States are battling head-to-head to take and hold the lead in key emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, genomics, and quantum computing. The results of this technological competition will have a profound impact on U.S. economic security and national security. Which country has the edge? What must the U.S. do to gain ground? And are we ready to take the steps that might be needed? Here with us today to discuss, Rob Atkinson. Rob is founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, recognized as a top think tank for science and technology policy. Rob, great to have you with us. Thank you, Gene. You have written that this face-off with China is not a competition, but a war. Tell us why. Well, historically, even since the beginning of the Republic, uh, we understood that we competed with other countries. So colonial America competed with Great Britain. Great Britain competed with France. It wasn't a war, it was a competition. And each country would eventually would try to specialize in certain things and win in those, but understand that they ultimately had to import other things from their competitors. That's not what China's doing. What China is doing is they are seeking in a predatory way to essentially destroy leading industries that they're trying to dominate and capture. So if you look at their Made in China 2025 plan, which uh, Xi Jinping came out with maybe, I don't know, 2016 or so, and you look at all the subplans in that, they don't really, there's no technology, whether it's emerging ones like you talked about at the, at the beginning, like quantum computing and AI, or foundational ones like aerospace and, and automobiles and uh, machine tools. There is no technology that the Chinese do not want to dominate. And we can see that no better than in telecom equipment, where they dominate the world now through Huawei and ZTE. In foreign policy, you wrote that the aim of China is to, quote, crush its competitors and make the United States an economic vassal state. Strong words. It is. Uh, And that's they feel like strong words because we've been so brought up to think about economic competition from essentially the David Ricardo theory by the English economist way back when, who said that countries specialize in certain things. The Portuguese would specialize in wine and the British would specialize in textiles and there's trade and everybody wins. It's a win-win. So it's really ingrained in the consciousness among certainly the policymaking community in Washington that that's what's going on with trade. And it is what's going on with trade with, say, Taiwan or Germany or Canada or Mexico. It's not what's going on with China. China has set their scopes to win on virtually every advanced industry. And it wouldn't be a problem even if that was if they were set that goal, but they were doing it in fair ways. But they're not doing it in fair ways. There was a study recently just came out a couple of days ago that they had just in the last two years uh, subsidized their semiconductor industry to, I believe, $170 billion. Um, so they, they'll do anything, uh, steal our intellectual property, you name it, in order to dominate. And so looking at the battlefield right now, who has the advantage? It depends on how you measure it and what you measure. Um, we're ahead on science-based industries like AI and biotechnology and, and semiconductors. We're frankly behind on a lot of other industries. Um, the Chinese now have the most uh, automobile exports of any country in the world now. 
They dominate high-speed rail. They dominate solar panels. They dominate steel. Uh, I think the race is much closer than most Americans think. Um, you know, you could say we're probably a bit ahead, particularly on a per GDP basis, but China's catching up quite rapidly. Is it possible that this competitive situation sparks more innovation in the U.S. or that we might switch from a competitive situation to a collaborative one with China? The first answer is probably not. The second is I sure hope not. The reason why I don't believe it's going to spur more innovation, we were asked by the Smith Richardson Foundation in New York City to do a big study on the effect of Chinese industry policies on global innovation. And the industries we looked at, what we found was that the more China dominates, the less innovation there is in the industries. We saw that, for example, in solar panels. In the 2000s, the U.S. had 60% of the solar panel market in the world. By the end of that decade, we had five or 10. Solar panel patenting globally peaked in 2010. It's gone down every year since because China dominates the industry and they don't innovate. So I don't think we'll get more innovation. I think we'll get less because what China does is they squeeze the profits for companies that would otherwise be used to invest in research and development. With regard to collaboration, um, I don't want to collaborate with somebody who's cheating. Uh, that is basically a win-lose situation. They win, we lose. I think we should collaborate with our allies, um, both because we're allies and, and, and because we generally all play by the rules. But there's no way I want to collaborate with a country whose goal is uh, predation and, and extraction and, and theft. That's just not what I think is in the U.S. interests. In your view, is the U.S. government fully aware of the dimensions of this threat? No, they're not. Um, if you look at what the Biden administration is doing now, and this is not, a, by the way, a criticism of any particular administration, it's really taken the U.S. government and officials and, and, and the um, sort of intelligentsia class, if you will, a long time to really catch up to the China threat. As late as the near the end of the Obama administration, there was still this view that we could work together and that there was going to be comparative advantage. I was co-chair of the U.S.-China Innovation Experts Group under Obama, and I saw that firsthand. The reason I say we're not taking it as seriously or understanding it as much as we are, as we should, is the Biden administration policy is a very narrow one, which is to limit their ability of their defense and intelligence systems to get access to particular technologies. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, um, probably more right than wrong, but it, it, it really is very narrow. It says, well, if we can keep her from getting some technology that they can use in their military, everything will be fine. No, not everything will be fine if they end up destroying our key industries. Uh, we're going to need these what people call dual use industries to be able to fight a war. So I don't believe the administration or frankly, Congress uh, really understands the magnitude of the challenge. So recently, Congress passed and the president signed the CHIPS Act, which bans the export of high-end chips and semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. Is that anywhere near enough? Well, just to clarify, uh, there were two things that happened in the last year. One was the CHIPS Act, which, which was really about financial support to build semiconductor fabs or factories here in the U.S. and to support advanced R&D. And the second was the October ban that the administration did unilaterally on uh, limiting exports of computer chips and equipment. The CHIPS Act is very important. There was a new study that was just released by the Treasury Department in the last few days, and it showed 
what had, people had seen earlier from Census Bureau data was that there's this massive spike in construction going on in the manufacturing sector. So in other words, manufacturing companies building factories. And everybody looked at that and they said, oh, this is amazing. U.S. manufacturing is back, man. We're good to go. The new study by Treasury actually shows that almost all of that was in the semiconductor industry, that the rest of manufacturing construction is still quite anemic. So it suggests that the, the CHIPS Act was important. It is important. And I'm so glad we did it. Um, it's not only the funding, direct funding, but it's also a 25% tax credits on equipment. I believe that the U.S. semiconductor production will be significantly higher by 2030 than it was now, than it is now, because of the CHIPS Act. Uh, so I think in, in a lot of ways, we're in pretty good shape with regard to the CHIPS Act. The, the export controls, though, the other question is how much, how much of the sand is going to be thrown in the gears of the Chinese? And certainly a lot. But I don't think at the end of the day, we can stop the Chinese from progressing uh, fairly significantly in semiconductors. When you put $160 billion in two years, uh, you can waste half of that. You can waste three quarters of it. It's still a lot of money. China's striking back. It's announced export controls on some metals that are used in semiconductors. And Chinese officials say that's just the start. They're going to escalate. Are we escalating the war? Are they escalating the war? rather than trying to find some sort of solution or accommodation. So the problem with that, and let me use an analogy. If somebody, you go to lunch every day and, and somebody punches you in the face every day for two weeks, and then finally you just, you've had it, you punch them back and they go, hey, what are you doing? That's aggression. We're going to escalate. That, that's what's going on here. And the, what, what, what I find troubling about what the Biden administration is not doing, they need to make it clear that we're not the ones who started the war. We didn't throw most of the punches here. The Chinese have been doing this for decades. And we need to call them out and say, look, you are violating the spirit and the rules of the World Trade Organization. So we're just now responding a little bit to your what we termed innovation mercantilism. So we shouldn't let China have that own that narrative that they're the victims here. Um, this is a this is by the way something that is in the global interest. Uh, it's certainly in our allied interest, and the allies should be thanking us for doing this for them, um, and they're not. So yeah, I think it's gonna. I don't see any way out of this not escalating unless we just want to say, yeah, you guys can have these industries. Um, we'll export soybeans and, um, and uh, you know, thanks. How should they be prosecuting this war, in your opinion? There's so many things that we should be doing both domestically and from a foreign policy, a foreign economic policy vis-a-vis -vis China. Domestically, let me give you one simple thing. When Congress and the administration support this, I will know that they're beginning to get serious. And that is we have a research and development tax credit. We were the first country in the world to put it in place when we were facing the Japanese competitiveness challenge in 82, 83. Right now, it's the out of 34 OECD and BRIC nations, so Brazil, India, China, Russia. Out of all of those nations, we're 32nd in R&D tax generosity. China has, if you do R&D in China, the government gives you three times more tax incentives than we do. This administration and Congress are not serious uh, because if they were serious, they would significantly increase the R&D tax credit. Why don't we do it? Uh, because the Biden administration and a lot of left of center Democrats want to spend money on social policy and on climate. They don't want to spend money on things that might go to corporations. 
And too many Republicans just want to cut taxes across the board, uh, cut taxes for rich people, cut taxes for middle class people, cut taxes for companies, and not do something like the R&D credit. So when we do something like that, we're serious. Secondly, China recently, uh, not only did they say they're going to cut off imports, exports of certain types of semiconductor chemicals and materials, they uh, basically banned Micron, which is an American uh, memory chip company, a headquartered. They basically banned their sales of products in China. If we let that happen, uh, we're basically sending a message to the Chinese that you can do anything you want in the future and we will roll over. Um, this is a little bit like, uh, I hate to use the analogy, a little bit like Churchill invading Czechoslovakia. You know, it's like you let them have an inch, they'll take a mile. We haven't done anything on that. We're, we're so, oh, okay, yeah, that's okay if you don't let, I know the administration is pushing back diplomatically, but if they, if that fails, which it probably most likely will, we should just simply say, okay, Chinese uh, televisions, no more imports of Chinese televisions, no more imports of Chinese computers, whatever it might be. We have to, the only thing the Chinese recognize is force meeting force. That's it. And if we let them get away with things like that, we're setting a very dangerous precedent in my view. So China has an industrial policy and they can merge the interests of government and industry and military and direct them. Do we need some similar sort of industrial policy? Yeah, they have what they call civil military fusion which is a basically civilian companies, uh, companies that aren't directly making only weapon systems, they pretty much have to do what the state council in China says they have to do. We obviously don't have that. One of the problems with your question is it's often asked as a black and white either or. Do we just need to be Adam Smith laissez-faireans or should we adopt state council Xi Jinping directed economy? The answer is neither one. But we can and should adopt a robust, smart national industrial strategy. I wrote a recent article for the American Conservative magazine. They asked me to write a piece looking at the history of American industrial policy. And the narrative is we never had one. That was totally wrong. The U.S. industrialized because of governments, both state governments and national governments. We had a tariff wall around our economy until the 1930s uh, because of this. So and I'm not advocating for a big tariff wall. I'm just saying that the idea that somehow the government shouldn't be involved. The reason the government has to be involved is that capitalism and for-profit companies do a wonderful job of things they want to do, but you're not necessarily assured that they are aligned with state interest. So for example, I'm just using it as a hypothetical, Boeing could say, you know what, let's get out of the plane business. That would be incredibly detrimental to U.S. national interests. Or if uh, General Electric says, let's, let's get out of uh, the, the turbine industry, or you, know, you can just go down and down the list. So there has to be an effort by the U.S. government to identify key strategic industries, both advanced and, and foundational, and say, these are so important to our country, we cannot afford to lose them. And we're going to have a wide array of policies to help. Uh, not to control the industries and all this stuff, not to pick particular winners, but we have to have particular sectors that we think are critical and support them. Can you get the U.S. government writ large on the same page on what the priorities should be? Well, the priorities actually are, are the least of our problems, because if you look at 
both what SCSP is doing, but other groups, um, Office of Science and Technology Policy, the Defense Department, multiple think tanks, they all went tasked to come up with a list of these important technologies. They all come up with pretty much the same technologies. We know what the technologies are. We know what the technologies that aren't. Nobody's really worried about uh, T-shirt production. Uh, but a lot of people are worried about autonomous systems production. So that's not the issue, I don't think. I think the issue is much more about, number one, are we going to devote uh, societal economic resources through to it? Or are we just going to cut taxes if you're a Republican or increase social spending if you're a Democrat? That's really the single most important question. Are we willing to spend the money to do it because it's going to cost money? And the second most important question is, can we work to develop these capabilities inside the U.S. government? Because right now they're pretty, pretty weak. Uh, the U.S. government used to know a lot about how to think about industrial strategy. And over the last 50 years, that knowledge has gone away. And we just have to rebuild that and build those capabilities. What agency would lead an effort like this? Would it be commerce? Yeah. I mean, there's two possible ways you could do this. Uh, it can't be DOD, uh, not because DOD doesn't have some capabilities and certainly they have money. From a political perspective, it probably will be DOD because that's it's easier to throw money at DOD and the Defense Appropriations Act. Problem with putting it at DOD is that everything tends to be put through the lens of weapon systems and it has to be broader than that. So I think ultimately commerce has to do this. Or if you wanted to, you could create a freestanding agency, uh, as we've proposed, a national industrial competitiveness uh, agency that would be uh, something like kind of Exim Bank, have, be part of government, but have a lot of flexibility. But yeah, I think either that or, or Department of Commerce, or you could do it through NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and they're managing the CHIPS Act right now. So you could beef that up significantly. Is there any prospect for getting this done? Well, I don't think it's as bad as getting uh, solving the abortion issue, uh, uh, which is unsolvable. Uh, you're either for it or you're against it or many issues like that that are dividing our country. This is one of those issues that that can and will and does bring together disparate parties. You saw that in the Chips and Science Act where you had, I believe, 14 Republicans sign on to the bill with Schumer, uh, the lead being uh, Senator Todd Young, a Republican from Indiana. You would have actually had more uh, Republicans sign on, I think, if they'd had a little bit more safeguards and things around China. You see this now with the special select committee in the House on China, very, very bipartisan committee. So I think that there's more hope. Uh, five years ago, you know, we and maybe a few other groups were kind of lone voices in calling for an industrial strategy. And now it seems like everybody is at least saying, well, you got to do something. So it's a lot better than we were five years ago. Um, I think the real question will be whatever the next president says is his or her priority. And if this is a top priority for the next president, whoever it might be, President Biden or whoever, then I think the odds are go up significantly. But it has to be ultimately a presidential priority uh, to drive the, drive the train. China is facing problems of its own. There are economic headwinds. It has demographic challenges. Is that going to slow down? their efforts in this technological area? Yeah, it'd be a little bit like saying, uh, you know, Usain Bolt uh, has, has uh, you know, gained a few pounds from drinking some beer, and instead of a 9.4 uh, in the race, he's a 9.5. I think it's a little bit of a false hope that a lot of folks in Washington put out there. Well, 
China has demographic problems. Yeah, over the next uh, 30 or 40 years, they might lose you know, tens of millions of people, but they're still going to have massively more than we do, massively more. Um, you know, their economy is slowing down a little bit. Of course it is, because a lot of the low-hanging fruit for them to gain productivity has, has been picked. But I expect China's GDP to grow at least twice as fast as ours for the next 20 years. Um, and on top of that, they show no signs of not uh, of sort of closing their wallets. They're, both the central government and the 29 provincial governments are pouring large amounts of money into this. And that's really all that matters. Uh, a lot of people say, well, the Chinese GDP will go down or, or slow down. Really an irrelevant question. We're not competing with the Chinese uh, insurance sector. We're competing with particular industries and particular firms where they're pouring lots of money into it. And that's all that matters. Can we beat them? Can we win? And so I'm I don't want to give uh, I don't want to give up and you know say oh yeah we're fine nothing to look at here. I want to loop back to innovation which you mentioned earlier. The mantra for years has been that China imitates but the West innovates that our open society gives us the freedom to think large to incubate innovation and that's what's given us an edge historically. Do you subscribe to that view or not? Well, like in almost all uh, conventional wisdom views, there's certainly some truth to that. Uh, absolutely. The U.S. Has, has does have core strengths, which we have to maintain. Our ability uh, and willingness to be taking take risks. Americans take more risk, are willing to take more risks than almost any other country. And we see that with the great companies that we build. Absolutely. Those are wonderful things we have. The problem, though, is that it's a too narrow a view of the role of government and too narrow a view of, of the nature of innovation. As I mentioned, if you, if you look at most of the major innovations that are in the economy now, a large share of them can trace themselves back to government funding. All the technologies we're using right now are basically can be traced back to government funding. That didn't mean that the government built Apple or built Google, although to be fair, Sergey Brin, uh, he was the, the, he was he, the way he got to Google was it was his PhD dissertation, which was funded by NSF, that helped discover some of this. National Science Foundation, we should say. National Science Foundation. So we have to remember that that historically the U.S. government has played an important role in innovation, but we we do have this very unique and positive system. The second thing is the Chinese are not the Soviets. Um, the Chinese government force all of their firms in a tough competition. They don't say, oh, well, here you can have all this money, you, you Politburo hack, and you can just do whatever the heck you want. Those companies have to compete. Huawei has to go out and win. Uh, and they will take the subsidies and support away if you don't do that. So their system is actually quite different than the Soviet system, which was not at all innovative. We're actually in the middle of a project now looking at just how innovative Chinese firms are. And it's way too early for us to conclude anything. But I will say there are little bits and pieces here where we see these Chinese firms winning, winning international innovation awards up against Western firms. So I, my sense is, again, a little early to tell, my sense is the Chinese are a little bit farther along than we think they are in the West, that they're making significant progress in innovation in certain areas. There is current debate about whether rules and regulations um, over some of these emerging technologies will 
promote innovation because we're all going to feel a little bit safer about it, more comfortable with it, or whether rules and regulation will hamper innovation. What are your thoughts? Do you know anybody, friends or colleagues, who refuse to use the internet and email um, because they're worried? I know people who refuse to use TikTok, which happens to be a Chinese-owned company. I do, I do know about that. I can tell you myself, I will not have my DNA done uh, because I'm concerned about the technology and the privacy or lack of privacy of my data. So, yeah, a few things. People do use the internet, everybody who I know. Yeah. But some people have reservations about some of it. Yeah, the reason I say that is the, the, it's, a, it's a claim that people who want very strong, heavy-handed regulation make. Oh, don't worry about the regulatory side effects on innovation. It will more than make up with this sort of security that people will feel, and now they'll use the technology. ITIF has done a bunch of work on that. It's all on our website. You can look at the studies. But bottom line is, it's again, it's one of those things. It's a little bit like Goldilocks. You don't want to have, you shouldn't have zero regulation, but if you have European style regulation, you get a large impact, negative impact on innovation. So we should have a national privacy bill, for example. If we did it the way Europe, if we modeled it on the European privacy legislation, it would cost $130 billion a year for compliance costs for companies and consumers. If we did it in a reasonable way, which still gives people the right to opt out of their data and some other things, the right to shift their data around, it's like 10 billion a year. So which are we gonna choose? So again, it's not regulation versus no regulation. It's you really wanna go with the Euro, the Euro style, which is really fundamentally at the end of the day gonna make, they, they, by the way, the Europeans now lag behind China in AI. So we're number one in AI innovation, according to studies we've done and others. China's number two, Europe's number three. That's pretty, if I were Europe, I'd be, I'd be kind of embarrassed by that. Uh, there's no way they should be behind China. They got a large number of computer science programs in universities, but one of the reasons they're behind is their, their regulatory system keep, makes it harder. You support some regulation, but a modest amount of regulation, if I got that right? Yeah, and the right kind. Like, for example, I don't believe we should regulate AI, artificial intelligence. But what I do believe is you should subject anything that is using AI to the same regulations of something else. So, for example, it's illegal in getting a loan to discriminate on the basis of race. If you're using AI algorithm, it's still illegal. doesn't matter whether your AI algorithm is doing it or some guy named Fred is doing it. So what we need to really think about is, are there any gaps or holes where we should have regulation on an application? Like, for example, we definitely should regulate AI in cars. We should regulate AI in medical devices. But there's no reason to regulate AI in dating apps. Uh, oh, my gosh, the dating app gave me somebody who's a little bit too short for me. Uh, this is terrible. We need government regulation. So that's what I mean by smart, constrained, going at the real problems and not going too far overboard. I've had guests on this podcast who have argued that AI in particular is going to cause massive disruption economically and potentially societally. Do you dismiss that? I do. Uh, first of all, what one man's, one person's word of disruption is another person's word for productivity growth. We are desperately in need of productivity growth. What does that mean? Think about how much hours we all work in society, add up those hundreds of billions of hours a year, and we produce the GDP. What we need to do is produce 50% more with the same number of hours, because a lot of people are getting old. A lot of people are retiring. That's going to cause a massive 
problem in our society if we can't figure out how to boost productivity. Only three things are going to happen. One is they're going to cut benefits for Social Security and Medicare. The second is they're going to raise taxes for workers. Or the third is we can grow our way through that. If AI can boost productivity, and that will mean some job loss, absolutely, it will help solve this problem. I will, in fact, I've bet a number of people on a thing called the Long Now Foundation, long, long bets that we won't have massive unemployment. We never have in the past, and I don't believe we will. So I, I just, I'm very, very skeptical. I actually think AI is not going to be anywhere near as transformative as people think it is. Uh, it'll be important, but the idea that it's going to be able to take 50% of our jobs and you're now doing AI, I, there's no way that's going to happen in my view. Why should the average American care about this competition or war, as you call it? The two reasons to care. One is um, I have two children. I do not them. I do not want them living in a world where China is calling the shots. I just don't like that world because China is not a democracy. They don't have respect for human rights and freedom. The United States, for all of our warts, we do. And, and I want us to be with our allies to still be the global hegemon. If we lose the technology war, it makes it a lot easier for China to take over and replace us uh, as sort of the global leader, if you will. But the second reason is it will mean fewer good jobs in America, slower productivity growth. We, what China would like us to be is, is a little bit like uh, Brazil, let's say, where we're selling a lot of soybeans to China. Uh, they come over and they study at our universities and they pay some tuition and they come and visit the Washington Monument. I don't want to be a third world tourism agriculture economy. Uh, I want to be the advanced technology economy because it creates wealth and good jobs for people. So if we lose that, it really does mean our economy is not going to do as well. We'll still grow, but we won't grow to the extent that we should. If you were placing bets right now on who is going to win this competition, this war, who would you put your money on? If, if you say, uh, give me a year, I'll say uh, by uh, 2040, I will pick China. 2040? Yeah. China. Yeah. Different year, different result? Well, I think we're still in the lead now. We'll still, we'll still be in the lead for a little while. But uh, at some point, absent us making serious changes, with our allies stepping up to the plate and taking some real responsibility instead of free riding, which is what the Europeans are doing right now, uh, I, I find it, frankly, you know, quite offensive. Uh they're using us for their defense shield and they're getting all the benefits from the China trade and making us pay the price. If we were to stand together as a group, Japan, Europe, uh, the Commonwealth countries, maybe India, uh, and we all put in place collaborative advanced industry policies, I have every belief that we could, uh, we would maintain the lead. One of the things that we have to do, probably I would say the most important thing we have to do is we have to figure out a way to make it less profitable for Chinese technology policies and, and predation. We let them have access to our markets when we shouldn't. Uh, and they'll go in here and they'll put American companies out of business because they've stolen their intellectual property or they're massively subsidized or we won't let, they won't let us into their markets. We should just say that if you don't play fair, you can't have our markets. That's really simple. And we should get our allies to say the same thing. If we did that, we would be in much better shape. Not clear we're going to do it. I hope we will. Do we have what we need to block them from our markets? Do we have the right tools in place? 
Well, one of the problems is we think that just sort of across the board, modest tariffs are the right tool. So, for example, President Trump put in place uh, 10% tariffs on some products, 25% tariffs on other products. And that helped a little bit. What it ended up doing, though, was leading the Chinese to just devalue their currency by 10%. So what we really need instead is a more strategic approach that's targeted to the kinds of products that they're trying to sell into our markets and allied markets that are advanced products that are systematically uh, made and sold through unfair means. We don't have the right tools. Um, we have what's we have we have uh, certain types of trade tools called anti-dumping and countervailing duties, but they're very narrow. So they're like, okay, this ten-foot piece of pipe you're making, you can't import that, but the nine-foot pieces you can import. Second problem with that is you have to show harm or damage. So if you're a company where the Chinese are coming in and taking away your market, and let's say they're taking away most of the growth of the market, the market's growing. 4% a year and they're taking all 4% of it, you cannot win your case because you haven't shown you've been harmed. That is completely out of date. Congress could fix that tomorrow if they wanted to. Be super easy. Just get rid of the harm threshold. But the most important thing Congress could do, and then this is a our article report that ITF wrote, is as a, I won't get too detailed on the different laws, but it, there's a provision of, the, of a trade law called Section 337 that the International Trade Commission operates. And it allows companies to bring a case before the ITC to have a 10-year exclusion order on Chinese products. I talked to the CEO of one company that did that, and they were able to do that quite successfully because the Chinese, the two Chinese companies that were trying to take his market share away had stolen his all of his trade secrets. And so he won. There's a lot of there's a lot of specific, easily done changes that Congress needs to make in that law to make it work effectively, um, like the allow and encourage the U.S. government to bring cases, et cetera, et cetera. But we could do that. And I think if we did that and we were quite assertive about it, we would send a clear message to China. This the reason why this is important is in many of these industries, if you get an initial advantage by selling a lot more, you the Chinese companies take that money and they spend it back in R&D and new equipment. And, and then they get the next round, they have even more advantage and we have more, we have more disadvantage. And it just spirals into eventually we're dead and they're thriving. So that's why these kind of defensive measures, I think, are so important. The Europeans are trying to do something a little bit similar. So I think there's some opportunity where we could all work together. But I think if we don't do that, if we just let China continue to profit uh, very extensively off of these unfair practices, at the end of the day, we're just going to lose. We cannot match their, their money. We, we're never going to match them dollar for dollar on subsidies, nor should we. So we have to find a way to slow them down. How do you light a fire under Congress to get any of that done? You know, what's interesting is if you look at the fire that was lit after World War II with the Soviet challenge, the fire got lit when um, largely two things, when the, when the Soviets were trying to take Greece over, but really the fire got lit when North Korea, with the backing of China and Russia, invaded South Korea. That's when we woke up. Uh, it's sad to say that it took us that. We should, we should have known that was likely to happen. We should have intervened sooner and better. But once we did, though, there was no stopping us. Uh, by the late 1950s, the United States government spent more money on research and development than every other country and company outside the U.S. combined. You take all of Japan, all of Germany, all, all everybody. We, the government, through mostly through DOD and NASA, uh, was spending more on R&D. 
So the fire can be lit. My worry is that the only way the fire will be lit is if there's an invasion of Taiwan. And by then it's potentially too late. I hope we don't get to that point. But the, our political system is very, very inertial now and, and, and clogged up. And it, I think ultimately it will take a presidential leader who says, this is an alarm. We've got to do it now. And I'm going to put all my political capital and all my eggs in this basket. And I'm going to demand that Congress does this. I think if you do that, we can, we can make very serious progress. But absent that or an invasion of Taiwan or some other major uh, untoward uh, activity by, by the Chinese government, I don't think we'll be able to do it. And I have to say, I, given that I'm on SCSP, I do think, <laughs> I would be remiss to say, I do think groups like SCSP, particularly Eric Schmidt's leadership on this, and I'm not just saying that, uh, even though I'm an advisor, I do think that groups like this, where you have high-level people all saying, hey, this is a crisis, this is important, you know, at the end of the day, that helps to move the needle as well. Rob is founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. So great to have you here. And thanks for joining us. To our audience, this has been NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. I hope you will join us again. Take care. Mm-hmm.